Well, I just want to thank everybody so much for being here this afternoon. One of my Christmas presents to you is that I turned off my mic during the choruses. <laughs> yes, I cannot sing, and it, I, I had it on for just a second, and I realized I was like, turn that off. You know, I don't want to chase the people away. So thank you for being here. I changed out of my Nike tennis shoes and put on my fancy shoes for the professional video that we're making. It will be marketed. Hopefully someday around the world. We'll see. Okay, so Christmas outside the box. I want to blow your traditional conceptions of Christmas right outside the box. How many of you would like that to happen? How many of you know that what we don't need in our world today is just another season of tradition that comes and goes? It's fun. It's pretty. It lasts a little while, but December 26th will be exactly the same if we only look at Christmas the same old way as we always have. And so Christmas Outside the Box is about looking at God's grand view of the world. When we were singing that chorus, Joy to the World, and the, the, the part that says, Let Earth Receive Her King. Amen? If we could really and truly receive Christ Jesus as our King Right now, understanding who he is and what he's coming back to do, what a world this would be. Amen? So it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to rise up and live for what matters. And that's what I'm praying will happen. If you brought your Bibles with you today, you can have them open and ready to use. If you didn't, scriptures will come up on the PowerPoint. You have an outline in your hands. Please don't try to follow the outline. I'm much more fun to try to follow as I race from one side to the other and up and down. That outline is for you to have a hold of the scriptures for later on. You don't need to have to worry about jotting them down. When you leave, we're also going to be giving everybody a little gift when they go, which has to do with the third point that I'm going to make in the message. This little ornament that you get when you leave will change your whole viewpoint of cubes and mathematics. How many of you said amen? Amen. Okay? You need your view changed of mathematics and cubes. So we're excited about that. What I'd like to do before I start, though, is to go to the Lord in prayer, thank his Holy Spirit for being here, and pray that he does something miraculous in your hearts today. So bow with me if you would. We come before you, God, ruler of the universe. Despite how the nations rage and the people plot in vain, you are the King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, there is a lot of unrest in our world today, a lot of fighting and a lot of chaos and a lot of uncertainty in economics and governments all across the world. But there is one truth that remains, and God, you are trying to get us to see that. You are the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You came and invaded history 2,000 years ago, and yes, you were laying in a manger, the feeding trough. For animals, but you grew and you died and you rose again, and you are coming back a second time. And I pray in the name of Jesus that people who may have never harnessed or grasped that truth would see Christmas in a new and wonderful way. They would see the transcendent God who is behind Christmas and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. And the relief from guilt and sin, which we can have. And not only that, it's amazing to me, God, that you erase and forgive our sins because you placed your wrath on Jesus, your son. But even more amazing is the fact that you have something even 
to exist beyond that, you have a new heaven and a new earth planned for us that forgiven we can stand and be with you one day and enjoy the universe as it was meant to be. So thank you, God, for this big picture. Truly and reverently, I ask you, Holy Spirit, in this place to blow Christmas outside the box for us on this day. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, what we don't need is more tradition. It's fun to decorate our homes. It's great to buy people presents. How many of you like to eat together like we did today? I'm a diabetic, though. All I had was four servings of green beans. But that was good. It was good beans, Marty. Okay, so we we like all those traditions, but it's got to be about something bigger than that. It's got to be about something much bigger than just traditions. The Bible tells us, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, he says, right now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, I touch on this in the heaven event when I teach about heaven, but I want to ask you guys, how many of you in this sanctuary this morning know that no matter what your best moment in life seems to be, it's always invaded by just a little bit of something's not right? Amen? Even the moments that are supposed to be the absolute most wonderful don't turn out to be so because of various and sundry reasons. And it's rooted in this scripture verse. Paul said, right now, under the sin curse, in this world, things are partial. They are not quite right. We are waiting for the day when things will be perfect. The Bible also says in the book of Psalms that, God, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Nobody in this sanctuary has ever experienced the fullness of joy as it's meant to be yet. But for those of us who trust in Jesus, there is coming a day when we are fully wrapped in his presence. Amen? When we will experience the fullness of joy. But for now, the verse says, God, you will make known to me that path to life. And how many of you, when you were younger, know the scripture that we find in Psalm 119, verse 105, that says, Lord, your light, your word, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, I like that because right now, currently, his word is a lamp unto my feet, first of all, for the steps that I'm taking right now. Lord, what do I do when I get up today? What do I do in the next few seconds? How am I supposed to act? It's a lamp for my feet right now, but it's a light for my greater path down the road. Amen? So God has lighted the way for us to be with him, and one day he's taking us to a place where there will be absolute fullness of joy. Not invaded by anything that's broken. Not invaded by any sense of guilt or any difficulty. Now, I share that with you because Christmas is one of the seasons that we build up culturally in our minds. We come to the Christmas season and we think, oh, I can forget about all my troubles because December 25th is coming. Let me spend months decorating my house. Let me fall off the rooftop putting lights on my, my gutters. You know what I mean? Let me cook forever. Let me gain a few pounds. Let me put uh, stuff on my credit card that I shouldn't to buy gifts for a ton of people. Let's make Christmas just this wonderful moment and all of my troubles will seem to vanish for a time. That's what we do as a culture. We blow it up into this big thing. 
And half of what we do doesn't even mean what it's supposed to mean. But here's what happens. Let's say that you set up the perfect Christmas morning. Let's say that you bake the best food and you've decorated your house wonderfully and you've invited all the guests and there's the smell of hot chocolate in the morning and the kids get up and everybody's ready to open their gifts, okay? It's supposed to be what? One of the best moments in life. And let's get to that place. Do you realize that in that moment what's supposed to be a great moment of life, something as simple as a headache, a bout of arthritis, or the stomach virus, can ruin your entire moment that was supposed to be perfect. The present becomes not the fullness of joy it was meant to be. Or you're sitting there on Christmas morning and you've worked up to this moment and and there you are, it's supposed to be so wonderful and full of joy and all of a sudden the past comes rushing in and you're thinking of the people who aren't there who used to be. Or you're thinking about sins or guilt that you hold from the past and it rushes into your head. And even that moment on Christmas morning is just not exactly what it's supposed to be. Amen? Or how many of you have had the future rush in to your perfect moment? Christmas is ready. Everybody's there ready to unwrap the gifts. And all you're doing is thinking about the fact that you know you're about to lose your job in a couple of months. Or you're thinking about the doctor appointment you have to go to and what the diagnosis must be. And we find in life that there is not fullness of joy. Amen? And so my contention is, based on the Word of God, Christmas has got to be about something bigger than I love to give. It's got to be about something bigger than decorating my house and all the traditions and even singing of the Christmas carols. It's got to be about the transcendent God of the universe. Amen? And so we're going to go over three points this afternoon. Two of them we're going to go over, then we're going to break for an offering, and I'm going to finish the third one. In my opinion, the third one is the humdinger, all right? The third one is the cube. And I, but I want to start with these first two points, and the first one is this. Jesus turns things inside out. How many of you know that in this room today? Jesus turns things inside out. You know, I, I just want to share by way of a testimony. I've been an insulin-dependent diabetic for 30 years. I've had some hemorrhages behind my eyes, which is a common complication of diabetes. On November 7th, I went to an ophthalmologist, and he looked at me and said, Your eyes are crystal clear. Your bleeding is all gone. Your early-onset cataracts of eight years ago are totally gone. I don't know what cataracts you're talking about, Shelley. And I said, God, you turn things inside out. Amen? Now, I'm still a diabetic, and I still suffer with the things that I suffer with, but my God is on the throne, and he's protecting me for his purposes. God can turn the very fabric of your life inside out. Now, I brought um, not one of my favorite sweaters that I ever bought in my life. Okay, I brought a sweater here, and this sweater right now is inside out. You can see the tags. You can see the heavy seam lines. And you can see that there's supposed to be some kind of decoration here in the stripes, but it doesn't look that good right now because the sweater is inside out. And I want to tell you today that the fabric of the entire universe, the cosmos, is inside out right now. You realize that? When mankind rebelled against the maker of reality, reality got turned inside out. 
The fabric of the very universe, even the earth itself, in natural disasters and in fighting us for what we seek to do in in taking over the earth as God made us to, it's a battle. The universe is inside out. And the fabric of our very self is also inside out because we are in a state of rebellion against God until we come to Jesus Christ as we should. And so the human heart is inside out. And what Jesus came to do... When you have something that's inside out, what do you need to do to make it right again? You gotta turn it. What's that? You gotta turn it inside out. And then what was wrong suddenly becomes what? Suddenly becomes right. And now the rough edges are gone and now you can't see that, that nasty tag there and that design and the stripe that looks kind of funny from the, from the wrong side. You can see the detail and the beauty of it. Jesus came to turn the fabric of the universe and the fabric of the human heart inside out to make it right again as it was supposed to be in the first place. Jesus turns things inside out. He said in his word very paradoxical statements like this one. For whoever wishes to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. That's an inside-out statement, isn't it? Because we live in a world that's telling our children and telling us, grab everything you can for yourself. Do things your way. Amen? Live for yourself. Grab life for you. But Jesus said that if I do that, what's actually going to end up happening, the word for lose there means to destroy My life will end up being destroyed. But if I give my life away, not for any cause, you know, I can give my life away to save the whales, for example. But you know what? That's not going to give me life. Jesus said, if you give your life away for what? For my sake. If I say I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ, selling out 100%, he gets everything. The paradox, the inside out truth is when I do that, guess what? I get life. And I want to tell you I'm standing before you this afternoon, and I have life. I have problems, and I have difficulties, and I have strains and stresses. But Shelley Prindle has real life because I've given my life away to Jesus. He turns things absolutely inside out. It's what C.S. Lewis meant about the future when he said that is what some mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss could make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. I want some of you to understand something. It's not just that you have to turn things inside out now and give it to Jesus to get life now. It's about what Jesus is going to do someday for a fact. Now, I remember... I don't know how many years ago it was, within maybe uh, eight or ten years ago, maybe not that long, I sat down with the mother of a teenage girl who was suffering tremendously in her physical body, suffering for a long time with a terrible, life-threatening illness that caused her to suffer greatly. And this mother sat down with me one day when I was teaching high school Bible and math. She came to me and she sat down across from me. She said, Shelly, I need to talk to you. I know that you teach the Bible. I know you believe in God in a great way. She said, please. And through tears, she said, how is God ever going to make up for what my daughter is going through? She trusts in Jesus. 
And I looked at that mother and I said this, and I meant it with all my heart. I said, look, you've got to understand something. If you believe John 3.16, for God so loved the world. How many people know that verse? Amen. They hold it up in stadiums. I looked at her and said, if you believe John 3.16, you've got to believe the whole Bible. Can't be parts true and not part and not part of it is. So I said, if you believe in John 3.16, then you've got to believe in 2 Corinthians 4.16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now listen to what Paul said. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, we fix our eyes not on what we can see, but on what we can't see. Because what we see is temporary and what we can't see is eternal. Now, what Paul was saying, Paul wasn't some guy with an easy life, by the way, just so you know. Paul gave his life away for Jesus. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten with rods. He was beaten with whips. He gave his entire life away. He was in prison. He ended up getting beheaded for the name of Christ. And he was able to say this. These troubles are light and momentary compared to the eternity that God is going to give me. You say, Shelley, do you really believe that people who suffer physically, we look at people who suffer with cancer, we look at the starvation, the things that go on in the world. Listen, this is what I believe. And I looked at this mother and I said it. If you believe in the whole Bible, then you've got to believe this, that there is an eternity. And if there is an eternity, then God has an infinite number of moments. Are you with me? And an infinite number of ways to make up for whatever the suffering is. The problem is our brains are finite and we can't get past that veil from this life to the next. But I have some information about it. Amen? Jesus is going to turn things inside out. C.S. Lewis, I love how he said it. Heaven's going to work things backwards and undo the suffering and we will be rewarded. Jesus was always talking inside out. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be what? Comforted. He said, blessed are the meek because they're the ones that are going to inherit the entire earth. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness now because they're going to be Filled. Jesus absolutely turns things inside out, and in a very real and tangible way. This picture up on the screen is a picture of an excavation of a jail cell in the city of Philippi. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians. How many of you know Bible verses from the book of Philippians? Okay, let me just, let me just start a few for you, okay? Philippians is a hope-filled book. It, it, it has verses like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Yeah, you can say them with me if you know them. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. Those words were written by the Apostle Paul. 
Now, his letter to the Philippians, the first time he ever visited Philippi, this is where he ended up. He preached the gospel, cast the demon out of a young lady, and what it got him was the magistrates beat him and Silas with wooden rods to the point that they were bleeding, threw them in a jail cell, much like this one, put their legs in stocks, their hands in chains. All right? That's what they got for preaching the gospel. And guess what the Bible says they did? They began singing and praying. Okay. Jesus turns things inside out. And do you know that after they began singing and praying, the earth literally shook, their chains came off, and they were ejected out of this jail. The jailer and his whole household got saved. So literally, God throws things inside out. Now, whenever I look at this picture, I do have to say something because um, a couple of the people that are in my class or were in my class are here now. I use this picture in my teaching of the book of Philippians, my Sunday school class. And the jokers in my Sunday school class, you know what they said? They looked at that picture. They said, Shelly, couldn't Paul and Silas have gotten out of that jail? <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is what I deal with. So anyway. But the thing is, when he actually wrote the book of Philippians, by the time he was writing the book back to the church, do you know where he wrote it from, all those verses we just quoted? Do you know where he wrote it from? Not this jail cell, but a dark and damp Roman dungeon. Chained to a Roman soldier, the man wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Now, you might look at that and say, Shelley, I don't understand that. How could God possibly do that for me? How could I possibly have real joy and real hope? And real passion, Mm. you've got to get to know this Jesus and believe the whole counsel of the word of God. Because Jesus turns things absolutely inside out. And now it's time to take one of the most famous Christmas verses you'll ever hear. And I'm going to turn this thing completely on its head. You will never look at this verse like some of the Christmas verses, some of the verses in the Bible. It's like we kind of take them and we read them. We're like, ah, isn't that nice? We pet them. I love that verse. Okay, the Bible's not meant to be petted, although I do pet mine sometimes. Okay, what is, Okay, it's supposed to be like life-changing. We're not supposed to look at verses. Isn't that a nice little Christmas verse? Okay, this is a verse that I'm just going to turn, God is going to turn totally around for you. How many of you have ever heard this? And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Who's ever heard that verse before? Isn't that a nice verse? Pet the little Christmas verse. Okay, we read that to our children. Honey, you know, there was no place in the inn. They put Jesus in a manger. Okay, that's nice. Let's talk about what this really means. One afternoon, I was reading this verse, and the Holy Spirit just opened up two words for me. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. That happens to me sometimes, you know. I know, people look at me and say, you've got to be kidding me. Look, it says... Jesus came and there was no place for him in the inn. Just think about those words, no place. Now let's back up for a second. Jesus is God. Just so, and, and I'm not, I'm not belittling that point. Just so everybody in the sanctuary knows. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Jesus, when he came to the earth, is divinity put on flesh. Okay, God, Jesus is God. Now, let's think about how big God is for a second. 
All right. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can look here. It's on the it's on the handout. It's Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12. Now, here's what Isaiah 40 verse 12 says. It says that God is so big, he holds the waters of the universe in the hollow of his hand. Now, what I would like everybody to do, if you hold your hand out like this and you cup it just a little bit, just look at it for a second. Don't include your finger area. In the Hebrew, the hollow of your hand means what's there in your palm. Okay? So, Bobby, come here for a second. Would you mind? Bobby loves being on video. This will forever be on there. Okay. So, Bobby, give me the hollow of your hand. Bobby's a reasonably sized human being, right? Okay. So, let's see, Bobby. I'll give you some of these in case you need them. Let's see how much water Bobby's hand can hold. I'm going to try just a cap full here, Bobby. Let's see. Oh, good job, Bobby. Good. Very good. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. All right, so how much water can Bobby hold in the hollow of her hand? Not even a cap full. Are you with me? Not even a cap full. So, not only does God hold a water bottle full of water in the hollow of his hand, or a lake full, or an ocean full, but the Bible says that God can hold all the waters of the universe where? In the hollow of his hand. Use that analogy with your kids. Get them to see what the Bible's really saying. Let me ask you a question. How big is God? It's pretty big. Okay? Now, it also says in that same verse that he marks off the heavens with the span. Now, in the Hebrew, here's what a span is. If, if an adult male takes their hand, go like this with your hand, and you put your thumb out as far from your pinky as you can, this is a span in the Hebrew. Now, you can put that down. Yeah, I don't want to see all that. Okay, you'll put that down for a second until I explain something to you. The heavens. How big are the heavens? Well, scientists tell us the universe keeps expanding. Now, I am a geek by nature, and once I calculated how long it would take a person who lived 80 years and could walk a 20-minute mile, how long it would take them to walk to the averagely distant star, 90 million lifetimes. Okay? Now, galaxies, we live in the Milky Way galaxy, our closest neighbor from whom we would borrow sugar is the Andromeda galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy is 2.2 million light years away. Everybody's supposed to say, oh, that's our nearest galaxy, that's our nearest neighbor, yeah. Okay, 2.2 million light years. Okay, this is, in the time it takes me to say one, light has traveled 186,000 miles in one second. At that rate of speed, it would take light 2.2 million years to get to the nearest neighboring galaxy. The nearest neighboring galaxy, and scientists tell us there are trillions of galaxies in the universe. Are you with me? And how does God measure it? Well, we look through telescopes and we do all kind of mathematical projections and we sit back and we wring our hands and we're like, what? We can't even grasp how big this is. This is how God measures it. Okay, there it is. With a span. How big is God? Now get this. He is infinitely big. Now don't take this for granted because let's go back to our favorite Christmas verse. Our favorite Christmas verse says that when Jesus came to earth, there was no place for him. It absolutely, positively amazes me. That a God who is infinitely big, and not just infinitely big, but exists outside of time. Are you with me? Now, you may not be a scientist, but you're smart enough to know this. If God made time and space, 
He has to be bigger than time and space. He doesn't exist within it. I can only be one place at one time, and I can't go forward or backward in time. But guess what? God is everywhere at all times. He is timeless and infinitely big. And so it amazes me that when the time had fully come, God said, he looked down at this earth and he said, that's a mess down there. Those people are dying down there. Those people are hopeless. They are sinners and they can't get out of it. They have nowhere to put their sin. They have no way for it to be erased. They have no way, no power to function right. And and God could have very well said, and they deserve it. So good for them. Because we do. But instead, God looked down and he said, you know what? I'm going to become one of them. I'm going to invade the universe I made and learn what it's like to be a baby. Now listen, when Jesus was one or two months in the womb of Mary, do you know how big he was? As big as your pinky fingernail. Now think about this. God who is infinitely big and exists outside of time shrunk himself down to the size of a pinky fingernail and entered the womb of a woman and said, I want to know what it's like to be hungry. I'm going to know what it's like to have to not get a good enough night's sleep and wake up and work anyway. I want to know what it's like to feel rejected by people. I want to know what it's like to have something out in the future that's horrible hanging over my head. Are you with me? God put on flesh because we have flesh. Hebrews tells us that. We partake of flesh and blood, so God did. And God, who is infinitely big, shrunk himself down to the size of a pinky fingernail to enter in, to crash into this universe, to save you and me from our sins, to identify with what we go through, and to save us. Amen? I was at my favorite restaurant the other day. Wendy's, yes, Wendy's, okay. I was at my favorite restaurant the other day, Wendy's. You ever want to take me out? There I go. Okay, my husband hates Wendy's, so it doesn't work very well. But Wendy's restaurant, I kid you not, I was walking through Wendy's restaurant getting a refill on my iced tea, which I do about three million times a week. I was walking up to the front to get a refill, and a gentleman literally looked at me and said, excuse me, do you believe that people can forgive themselves of their sins? He said, if I'm sorry enough, if I confess it enough, if I'm sorry enough. And then the gentleman beside him came to tell me how he was trained in Vietnam to kill people. And he put his arm on my shoulder. They eventually asked me to sit down. You know, I started talking to them. They were like, huh, who is, and the the one man who had an accent, Shelly, you can pull up a chair. Okay, so I pulled up a chair and I'm talking to them. And the one gentleman from Vietnam put his hand on my shoulder. He said, Shelly, please tell me, what's God going to say to me? And I had the opportunity in the middle of Wendy's restaurant on a regular afternoon to say this. And I'll make sure everybody in the sanctuary understands it. You can put your sin one of two places. Listen, sin must be paid for. I wouldn't serve a God who wasn't going to punish sin. Would you? Would you love all the killing and starvation and and, and, and nasty jealousy and all the stuff that goes on in this world to go unpunished? Would that be right? 
No, sin has to be punished. And your sin goes one of two places. Now, we are finite and God is infinite. When I sin against God, it is an infinite debt that I owe. If I want to carry my own sin, I will take it to the grave and die and end up suffering forever separated from God in hell. And try to work out the payment for my own sin. But guess how long it's going to take? Infinity. Forever. Because I'm finite. Or I can take my sin and place it on Jesus 2,000 years ago. Because an infinite God can absorb an infinite offense. That's why God put on flesh and carried your sin himself. Because he could bear his own wrath and we can't. Amen? Your sin goes one of two places. This is the miracle of all miracles. Now, here we go with the no place thing. So we have this God who is infinitely holy outside of time and space. And here's the irony of this verse. I just, I literally cried the first time I realized this. So this God comes from outside time and space and he says, you know what? I am going to invade the universe I made. That's miracle of all miracles number one, right? I'm going to enter that universe. I'm going to go into time and space. I'm going to enter the universe that I made. Then he says, and not just that, I'm going to go to a particular galaxy in that universe, the Milky Way galaxy. And in that galaxy, I'm going to choose one particular solar system. And after I get to that solar system, I'm going to pinpoint myself to one planet in that solar system called the Earth. And once I get to the earth, I'm going to further pinpoint myself to one continent over there in the Middle East. And once I get to that continent, I'm going to locate myself in just one of the countries that I have made. And in that country, I'm going to pinpoint myself to a tiny little obscure town called Bethlehem. And once I get to Bethlehem, all I'm going to do is ask to find a place in one house of lodging. And he couldn't find it. Do you see the irony there? He made it all. He invades it and little by little pinpoints himself to one place of lodging and he can't find a place to be. If you have ever felt rejected, if you have ever felt that there's something not right, I don't fit in here. That's why Jesus came. He came and was rejected by the very universe he made, rejected by his own people, and couldn't find a place in one little house of lodging. Isn't that amazing? But here's how Jesus turns things inside out, okay? So we have God outside of time and space pinpointing himself to one little home, one little place of lodging, can't find room in the inn, so he has to lay in a manger. That's the story of Christmas. But when your children look at Jesus laying in the manger and they look at a manger scene with shepherds all about, you better make sure they understand the rest of the story. And when you feel rejected because you follow Jesus Christ and you don't fit in in this world, you better remember the rest of the story. Now, I take time in my life to memorize a lot of stuff, and I do that because I believe God says we are supposed to. 
But one thing that memorizing scripture will do for you, you can be sitting reading one scripture and all of a sudden your mind connects to another one. When I read, he found no place in the inn. Immediately, like electricity, the Holy Spirit zoomed my brain to another scripture, which is the exact opposite of the Christmas scripture. Are you ready for this? Jesus came, couldn't find a place. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. God gave the Apostle John a vision of the end of time. John said, I looked and I saw a great white throne. Jesus is going to step up to judge the living and the dead. Now watch this. Now remember, we have to believe all the Bible, right? He said, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, Jesus. Now listen to this. Remember, God came and couldn't find a place in one little town. Amen? Him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them to go. Mm. Yeah, it's sinking in now. Some people are like, oh, yeah. God came to the universe he made, and he couldn't find a place. He comes back the second time, and every single place in the universe runs from him. Sweet justice. Sweet This is a mere, whether this is metaphorical or literal, I want you to know something right here and now. When Jesus steps up to the throne as holy God, earth and sky are going to run from his presence. Because he is so holy, and Romans 8 tells me that even the earth and the universe is suffering under the curse of sin. We have natural disasters, and even the earth knows, I need to be made right. As people in this pew, some of you who haven't been remade by Jesus yet, you know on the inside, I need to be remade right. And if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Well, the earth is going to get remade. Amen? Earth and sky are going to run from Jesus. Now, not for the purposes of totally disappearing, but just because they're going to be like, whoa, he's holy and we're not. Where are we going to go? And they run from his presence. And what Jesus is going to do is reach out his infinitely long arm and grab the earth and the skies. You with me? And according to 2 Peter chapter 3, he is going to purge them and remake them by fire like you put gold through the fire to purify it. Amen? And he is going to put the heavens and the earth through a fire and remake it into a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. A place where everything is as it absolutely ought to be. Hallelujah. No more diseases. No more divorces. No more fighting. No more jealousies. No more wars. No more wondering about which direction the economy is going. No more torturing, no more starvation, nothing. Everything will be as it was supposed to be. And why? Because my Jesus is coming coming back to take over all places. And the Christmas story shows us just the beginning. He found no place. He'll take over every place. It's what he meant when he looked at his disciples and he said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, God in the flesh. For in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now watch this. If it were not so, I would 
I've told you. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. He's taking over all places one day. Why? For you and you and you and you for the people that he's made. He's going to take over all places and prepare it for us. But the key is, this is the key, when he came the first time, he found no place as a baby. And how many of you know this scripture? Even as he grew, someone came to him and said, well, Jesus, you know, what should we do to follow you? And Jesus was real seeker friendly. You know, he was always like, oh, just come follow me. It'll be easy. It'll be fun. Okay, yeah, no, somebody said, yeah, some guy's like, well, how can I follow you? And this is what Jesus said. He said, you see those foxes, those carnivores down there? See those foxes, those carnivorous animals? They have holes. See the birds flying up in the sky? They have nests. But what does it say? Sound familiar? But the Son of God has what? No place to lay his head. And then Jesus said, by the way, follow me. I have no place, but follow me. Isn't that interesting? You ever think about it that way before until the Christmas verse? He had no place. He said, but follow me. I'm rejected in this world. I can't really find a place to be. And that's how you're going to be as a Christian. You're out of sync. You don't fit right here. This world is off kilter. It's sinful. Jesus has no real place here right now. But he said, follow me. Because if you follow him, he's coming back to what? Take, say it with me, take over all places. And so I encourage you this afternoon, follow the one who could find no place. Because there's a day coming when he takes over all places. And I'll count the cost. And I'll suffer in my walk with Jesus. Because one day I'm going to walk on this same earth I'm walking right now. And everything is going to be right. Amen? Point number two. The enemy dies. God's plan goes on. How many of you know that's true? The enemy dies, God's plan goes on. I don't know what you're suffering in your life, but I want you to know something. God's plan goes on. God always, always, always keeps his word. Amen? He cannot fail. He cannot lie. He always keeps his word. So let's talk about this. A favorite Christmas verse is Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, where it tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Do you know where that prophecy occurred that that was going to happen? In the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Now, I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going to open it up to Micah 5, 2 and to Matthew 2, 1. This is how many pages are in between. See that? Not very many, right? Now, we make the mistake sometimes of reading our Bible. We'll read something's going to happen here. We'll flip over a few pages and it actually happened. And we think, well, that's nice because it's all one book. Okay, now wait a second. This really isn't one book. It's really 66 books. It's a library of 66 books. This book was written over a total period of 1,500 years. You get that? 1,500 years by more than 40 different human authors in three separate languages and on three different continents. There's a lot of space in between Mike and Matthew. It might just be this many pages, but do you know how many years it is? It is 700 years. Now, you might say, well, that's interesting, Shelley, that it was prophesied and it actually happened. Yeah, this Christmas, when you hear the word Bethlehem, I want you to think about something. It's very difficult to predict things ahead of time. Like, I may stand in front of you and say, it's going to snow tomorrow. And if it does, what would you say? Eh, she had a 50-50 chance of getting that right. But what if I say, it's going to snow on December 19th 
of the year 2017 sometime in the afternoon, and I got it right. You'd be like, eh, I'm not paying any money to go see her, but she's pretty good. What if I said, it's going to snow on December 27th of the year 2096 for exactly three minutes and 26 seconds within a 2.7-mile radius of the courthouse in Greensburg and then stop? And I got it right. Be like, wow, that Shelly's something else. Yeah, scientifically speaking, the farther out you project something and the more details you add, the less likely that it can happen by random chance. You with me? Now, Lee Strobel is a former atheist, and he wrote The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith, and he recounts the work of of, um, Dr. Peter Stoner as a mathematician. And he calculated once what were the chances that Jesus could fulfill eight specific prophecies about himself. When he calculated it, he came up with this number, one in 100 million billion. Yeah, a few people said, mm, wow. Everybody else was like, that's a big number. Not, chances aren't very good. Do you want to know how big this number is? It would be like if I said, we're going we're gonna to do a project here this afternoon. We're going to cut out one and a half inch square tiles. You with me? This is what we're going to do all afternoon. Cut out one and a half inch square tiles, and we're going to place the square tiles all over the surface of the sanctuary. No, not just the sanctuary. We're going to cut out enough to, to coat the entire surface of the United States of America with one and a half inch square tiles. Sound fun? No, not just the United States. The, every land surface on the face of the earth with one and a half inch square tiles. And we're going to put a gold star underneath one of the tiles. Then we are going to blindfold Erin Linhart. And we're going to tell her to roam the earth until she's 95 years old. God bless your soul. When you're 95, we're going to ask you to take off your blindfold, pick up whatever white tile you're at. The chances that she selects the one with the gold star is one in 100 million billion. That's the chances Jesus could fulfill just eight of the specific prophecies about himself. The chances that he could fulfill 48, it goes to a one with 157 behind it, which is the same chances that you have of selecting one particular electron out of all the known mass of electrons in the universe. Jesus has not fulfilled eight or 48 prophecies. He has fulfilled more than 300. Defying all mathematical odds and showing to us that this is a supernatural book. Amen? When Jesus, when God says in Micah 5.2 he's going to be born in Bethlehem, guess what? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. When Jesus says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you your sins, guess what? He is forgiving you of your sins. He always keeps his word. When he says, I will supply all your need, guess what? He's going to supply all your need because he cannot fail. And so we turn, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... He was born in Bethlehem, number one, as a fulfillment of prophecy because God always keeps his word. But I was reading this verse one day and I thought, in the days of Herod the king? That's crazy. Why would God?
have Jesus be born in the days of Herod the king. Do you guys know who Herod is? Wasn't a very nice guy, was he? Herod the king, or Herod the Great, was appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. This guy was ruthless and merciless and out to get power however he could. As a matter of fact, not only was he a murderer, he murdered his own wife, at least two of his own sons, and slayed the children in Bethlehem. Remember? That's the Herod. So one day I was reading this scripture and I thought, God, what? Why did you have Jesus be born in the days of Herod the king? Why? He's a ruthless, merciless, jealous, nasty, probably demonically driven man who's going to try to destroy your son. Why? Now I want to ask you a question in the sanctuary this morning. How many of you have ever asked God this question? Why? Why have I been born into the time I've been born? Why into the family that I've been born into? Why, I ask, why God with the genetic predisposition to have a disease? Why am I, why, how many of you have ever asked, why have I been born into these difficult circumstances? Amen? This is Christmas outside the box. The Christmas story is telling us something here. God wanted to know what it was like to suffer. He sent his son in the days of Herod the king. When the time had fully come, Galatians 4, 4 says, God sent his son. When every circumstance was exactly right, and he said, okay, this is when I want to send them. In the days of Herod the king. A nasty, nasty man. But I want to tell you something. Even though Herod was king, and all hell broke loose against the plan of God, God's plan went on. And I want you to take heart as you read these two scriptures I'm going to point out to you. Listen. It doesn't matter what hell breaks out loose against your life. You put your hope in God Almighty. His plan always goes on. Amen? So Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. Wise men came from the east and they said, Where is this who has been born king of the Jews? Now that would have gotten Herod a little bit angry because Herod had been appointed king of the Jews by the Roman government. And he liked that title. So here come these well-respected, intelligent scriptural-looking wise men. You know, they look to the scriptures, and they're all trusted. And they come and say, hey, somebody's just been born. It's king of the Jews. Herod's hair went up on the back of his neck. What? There's another king? He was very disturbed by this. But here's what I love. And then they said, yeah, he's been born king of the Jews. This is how we know. Uh, We saw a star rise in the east. And Herod was probably like, all I have is the Romans telling me I'm the king. There's a star? There's an actual heavenly body that's declaring somebody else is the king? There must be something to this thing. And I want to tell you something. It doesn't matter what a human being says about you, what they say your life is or what your value is. The king of the stars is looking at you right now and saying, you belong to me. Amen? The creator of the stars has something to say. James chapter 1 verse 17 says that God is the father of lights. And when Herod heard, wait, I've just been appointed king by a Roman authority, something in his heart, his heart must have started pounding. Wait a second. This guy must have a supernatural power on his side. A star says where he is. And Isaiah chapter 40 verses 26 through 28, it tells us this. If you're ever doubting God's care for your life because circumstances have spun out of control, this is what God told his people to do. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. That's what it says. 
See who created all the stars in the sky. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Then God says, so why do you say, O Christian, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Amen? That star in Bethlehem was deep. And it doesn't just apply to Jesus, it applies to us. God basically said in Isaiah chapter 40, If I hold burning balls of hydrogen and helium in the sky and take them, I made you in my image. If you look at the stars twinkling in the sky at night, you've got to know I love you and I'm taking care of you too. Amen? And so Herod was shaken in his shoes because there's a God who's in charge of the heavenly lights and it's his king. And then the wise men say, well, this king is coming. And Herod asks the question. He says, well, where's the king going to be born? Now, hang on to your hats here. This is important. He says, where's the king going to be born? And in verse 5, the chief priests and the scribes say to him, in Bethlehem, because we read it in the book of Micah. And then they quote the book of Micah. Now, this is what gets me. So Herod, who wanted to kill Jesus, said to the wise men, go to Bethlehem and find him, because I want to worship him. Now, he really meant, go to Bethlehem and find him, because I want to kill him. But here's the point I want you to get. When Herod wanted to know how to enact his plan of evil, guess what he trusted for information? The Bible. He believed Micah 5, 2, the part that said he'll be born in Bethlehem. Because he, something even in evil Herod knew, there's something to this. But he didn't believe the part that he should be ruler over my people. And I want to serve that as a warning. I know this is a nice Christmas message, but listen to me. There is a possibility that you can believe some of the scripture and be very lost. You can't believe the scripture for your own purposes. I'll believe the parts I want to do what I want to do with my life. No, you have to believe the whole counsel of scripture. You have to believe it with Jesus Christ as Lord. And so the wise men went, and they went to find Jesus, and they didn't report back to Herod because they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And then the Bible tells us that when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, take the baby to Egypt because Herod wants to kill him. Now listen, Herod when he found out he was tricked by the wise men, what a ruthless man, murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem two years old and younger. Thinking he was enacting some kind of plan while all the while Jesus was down in Egypt. Why? Because God was moving spiritual pieces into place. He was talking to people in dreams and visions and using angels. Are you with me? And Jesus was protected the whole time. How many of you have ever done one of these puzzles? The slide puzzles. You know, they, they used to be in a frame and you'd slide all the pieces around. Okay? This is what I picture. Herod's off doing his thing, thinking he's going to destroy the plan of God. There's not going to be a king of Jews. I'll just wipe everybody out, blah, blah, blah. And the devil's doing that to all of us who trust in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, the devil's out to get you. 
a week before this event came, I had been preparing and preparing and preparing, and I literally was struck with a problem in my eye. I was seeing a shadow in my eye, thought I was going to end up in the hospital. The next morning, I got up, and I said, God, I'm calling this for what it is. This is a spiritual attack. I started teaching my Sunday school class the next morning, and it went, and it never came back. I want to tell you something. The enemy is against you, and he's working his plan, and you might see it, and there might be physical things that that are manifesting that you can see, but behind the scenes, God is sliding the pieces in place. All the while, he's sliding pieces around, using angels and spiritual forces in realms we can't even see. He's working it all together for his good, even though Herod's doing his evil. And the Bible says he had those children slayed, and all it did was fulfill the prophecy that God had already written that that was going to happen. And God took care of all those babies. I read in the book of Second Samuel, David, you know, when his baby died, he looked and he said, well, my baby's not coming back to me, but I'm going to go to him. And I believe... When I get to heaven, I do. I want to talk to those children who were slain. Because God had it all under control. Amen? Jesus was saved. Now, here's what I want you to see. I just want you to hang your hat on. You ready for this? Herod wreaked a lot of havoc. The devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Amen? When Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king... And Herod did all this nasty stuff. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. The first four words. You ready? Say them with me. But when Herod died. Just kind of let your, your, your voice trail off after that. But when Herod died, the angel of the Lord, blah, 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 blah. In other words, this terrible cruel person who tried to destroy the plan of God. What happened to him? He died. And then the angel came back and said, take Jesus to Israel. And Jesus lived. And he died. And he rose again. And he's coming back. Amen? My Savior is alive. And Herod is dead. The enemy of God, every enemy that comes against God and his people, every dog has its day. God's plan goes on. Amen? Amen. We're going to um, take a pause here for the offering, and then I'm going to come back with the last and final point of the cube. All right, now I come back with one of my favorite things in the world. Something from the world of mathematics. How many math lovers do I have out there? Okay, how many of you have ever been converted to kind of like math because of Hope and Passion Ministries? Okay, 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 we got a couple, we got a couple. All right, we'll have some more converts today. All right, listen, God speaks through the cube or the box, and I want to show you that, and, and I say it kind of lightheartedly, but not really. The book of Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Amen? God speaks through the things that he has made. And one of the things that he speaks through, now you have to forgive me because my degree is in mathematics. I love math. I see through math God reveals his his consistency and his precision to take care of us. Amen? But 
God really does speak through a cube in the Bible. And I want you to see how deeply he can touch your heart through this. And my goal is that at Christmas time, when we're looking at gifts and all the stuff that people get us and we get for people, we'll look at those boxes and we'll think of a cube. And we'll see it in a totally different way because presents will come and go. Amen? One of the questions that one of those men at Wendy's asked me, literally, he looked me in the eyes. He said, I had a pastor tell me once that there's something called treasure, like in heaven. (laughs) And I said, yes, there is. There's a place where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Amen? And uh, let Christmas boxes remind you of God and what he's saying through the cube. And let's not live for the temporary. Let's live for the eternal. So... God speaks through the box. Now, the first time that we encounter a box or a cube is actually in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. Now, you may or may not be real familiar with this, but you have a handout. You can research some of it on your own. But in the book of Exodus, God told Moses and his people to build a tabernacle. How many of you remember that? And the tabernacle was supposed to be the place that God met with his people. He said, build a sanctuary for me that I could meet with you. Now, I want to, before we get to the tabernacle, I want you to understand something that we so much take for granted. In the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't come and died on the cross yet. People were not able to have the kind of vibrant, living relationship that we have with God now because when Jesus died, he said, I'm going to go back up to heaven, but if I go back, it's to your benefit because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. We highly underrate the third person of the Trinity. His name is the Holy Spirit. And I may not look like much up here in my five-foot-six frame with my wild, curly hair, but I'm going to tell you something. God's Spirit dwells in Shelley Prindle. And He dwells in any of you who truly believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you shouldn't be sad that I'm leaving. You should actually want me to go, because when I walk the earth, I'm just in front of you in one place at a time. When I leave, God's Spirit will dwell inside of you. God's Holy Spirit can talk to us. It it amazes me. The Holy Spirit strives with me. I sin against Him and He is gracious enough to convict me. I walk around in this fleshly body with worries and fears and the Holy Spirit is in me comforting me. Amen? Now in the Old Testament, God's Spirit was there because God is omnipresent, but not with them quite in the way that He is with us today. And so God said, build a tabernacle so I can dwell there, and and I want you to offer sacrifices, and this is the place specifically where I will be. So they built a tabernacle complex exactly as he said. It was The the courtyard was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. Now, Now, inside the courtyard, there was a rectangular structure divided into two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, allowed in the courtyard, no common person could ever go. No common person was ever allowed in the courtyard of the tabernacle. The only people who were allowed in the courtyard were priests and Levites, a tribe that was specifically in charge of the tabernacle and its furniture. No common person could go into that courtyard. And priests and Levites could go in. But when it came to the actual holy place, 
Only priests were allowed. Now the Levites aren't even allowed in there. And when it came to the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, only one person once a year was allowed to go in. The great high priest on the Day of Atonement, only one person once a year was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And after going through a great ceremonial cleansing and offering of sacrifices and at risk of death, if he hadn't done everything exactly right, he could literally fall over and die in the Holy of Holies. Now, why is that? Because in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was the place where God's glory specifically dwelled. Now, you have to get this in your brains. You need to understand this. It has everything to do with your life today. Back in the Holy of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And I know you've all heard that term. We see it bandied about even in modern-day movies and things. But it's not something to be taken lightly. The Ark of the Covenant was God's idea. And it was the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. It was a rectangular box about four by two by two overlaid with pure gold. And the top of the box was called the mercy seat. It was made of pure gold. And hammered out of one piece with the mercy seat were two gold cherubim. And you can see them there. They were leaning over looking down on that mercy seat. Now, God said... I will dwell above the mercy seat between the cherubim. That's where my glory will be. And only the high priest once a year is allowed to come in. And when he comes, he has to burn incense so that there's smoke filling the room so that even he can't see my glory. Wow. That's holy. Amen. That thing was called the mercy seat on the top. Because the priest, when he would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, you know what he did with the mercy seat? He would slay an animal, drain its blood into a basin, take a branch, dip a branch into the basin of blood, go in behind the curtain. See, the holy place was separated from the Holy of Holies by a thick curtain of blue, scarlet, and purple yarn or linen, okay? The thick curtain divided the holy place from the most holy place. Once a year, after cleaning himself as he had to, he could go back in there, take the blood on a branch, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. That was the one thing he was to do. You say, why? Jesus is the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a picture of our Jesus. You know what was kept? One of the things that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant was the law. The Ten Commandments were down in that box. I love this. And the Ten Commandments are constantly telling us that we can't please God. Amen? You're not saved by obeying God's law. You can't obey it. The purpose of the law is to show us that we fail. And so there's that law down in that box constantly trying to say, you don't belong in the presence of God. You don't belong in the presence of God. You're not holy. You fail. You fail. So what goes over the law to hold its power down in my life? The blood of Jesus Christ, the mercy seat. The blood was sprinkled there because the mercy seat is a picture of Jesus. His blood over Shelley Prindle's heart holds down my hopelessness. 
and says, Shelly, yes, you do fail. You are a sinner, but my blood covers you and holds down the power of the law to say you are guilty. Amen? I'm not saved because of the good person that I am. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I am saved because when God looks at me, he sees Jesus Christ. That's the mercy seat. So all this holy, holy stuff was going back on in that one place called the Holy of Holies, that one piece of furniture, and God dwelled in that one space. That was where his glory was. And only one person once a year could even go near it. Are you with me? Now, interestingly, the shape of the Holy of Holies, that room, what do you think it was? It was a perfect cube. That yellow space, the Holy of Holies, was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. Hmm. Yeah, Bobby, hmm. You know why that's so interesting? Because in that cube was where God's presence was contained and held in one spot. Do you know what happens when you take a cube and you unfold it? Listen to me. And the word became flesh. And so we have seen God's glory. The glory of the only one, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Watch. His presence was once stuck in a cube. We couldn't get to it. Then came Jesus, who unfolded the glory of God before our eyes. I believe God made that Old Testament holy of holies a cube to show us something. God's presence isn't stuck in a cube anymore. Because Jesus died on the cross for my sin, God's with me in my kitchen. He's restaurant when I'm eating chicken nuggets. God's with me. His glory came in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and so we have seen the glory of God. Hallelujah. When Jesus died on the cross, a couple of things happened when he gave up his spirit. And one of the things that happened had to do with the holy place. There was a temple still standing when Jesus died. It was called Herod's temple. He had refurbished it. And there was a holy place and a most holy place, and the curtain was dividing the two. And the Bible says very clearly, watch this, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Behind the cube was God's presence. And when Jesus died, the thing that divided us from his presence was taken down. 
so that people like you and me can enter in to his glory. Amen? The curtain was literally torn in two from top to bottom. Lest anybody think somebody took a gigantic pair of shears or scissors and cut that thing themselves when he died, that 15-foot curtain was torn in two from top to bottom by the hand of God to show us that God's presence and his glory had come to us through the death of Jesus Christ. Amen? And then the next time we see a cube is with the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. Now, before we go to what Paul said about a cube, how many of you remember how to find the volume of one of these? If I want to know how much sand I could fit in here, yeah, Roy's raising his hand, Shailen, okay, a few of our actual students and a few geeky engineers know. But here's how you find the volume of a cube. We live in a three-dimensional world when it comes to space. And so if I want to know how much sand I can fit in this cube or how much water, what I do is I multiply the cube's width times its length times its height. Who remembers that? Just, just make me happy. Okay, you remember that. That's how we find how much stuff, how much guts is in a cube, okay? Now, the Apostle Paul wanted, to, wanted you to know how much guts how much stuff is in the love of God for your life? And so he said in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, he prayed. And he said, I'm praying that out of God's glorious riches by his spirit, he would make known to you the love of Christ. And this is what he said. How wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Why did he say it surpasses knowledge? Because it's more than three-dimensional. Did you hear what he just said? We calculate the guts of something by multiplying wide, length, and high. And Paul said, I pray that you'd know the love of Christ, which is wide and long and high and deep. There's a dimension to God's love that we can't wrap our minds around. That is invaluably important to you right now. Because you might say, Shelly, how could God love me? I can't even love myself. How could God love me? You don't know what I've done. How could God love me? You don't know what my life is like. Because we know a love that goes beyond what we can figure out. God's love goes deeper than your love for yourself could ever go. God's love goes deeper than any human being could ever love you. Amen? It has a fourth dimension. Now, look, God's love is wide. You say, Shelley, how wide is God's love? So wide that it reaches to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 40 says he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He's not just the creator of the average or the means. He is the creator of the extremes. If you ever feel like you're on the fringe and you don't fit in or you've gone too far away from God, God's love is so wide it reaches who? Everybody, the rejected, the accepted, everybody. God's love is long. You say, how long is is God's love, Shelley? Well, I'll tell you what, it is so long that God knew you before you were ever conceived by your parents. And when you were in the womb, Psalm 139 says, he literally with his own hand wove you together in your mother's womb. 
His love is so long, this is what gets me, that he looked down through the annals of time, way back in eternity past. He knew who Shelley Prindle would be. He knew how I'd rebel against him. He knew what a mess I'd be and how I'd sin against his heart. And still, back in eternity past, he said, I'm still going to go to the cross and die for her. That's long love, amen? That is long suffering. How long is God's love? His love is so long that passed from this world into eternity, His mercy will not end. And if you wonder how am I going to get over the chasm from this life to life in the next world, the long-suffering love of God is going to take you right over it. Amen? How high is God's love? I'm glad you asked. His love is so high that it can take you from the lowest place you have ever been. The worst you have ever done, ever felt, the most hopeless. His love is so high, it can lift you up into the presence of God Almighty and say to you, you are my child. I love you. God's love is so high, it could take a dirty, rotten sinner and lift us up to where we can wrap our our arms around God and receive a hug from holy God himself. Amen? And his love is deep. So deep that there is not a sin you could ever commit that God can't rescue you. Amen? There's not a place in the human heart. You know, I have had so many people through my years of ministry say, Shelly, nobody could ever understand. You can't understand. You don't, you don't get it. This place is too deep. It's too dark. It's too confusing. It's too difficult. As even if I go and dwell in the bottom of the sea, the lowest point in life, God, your hand will grab me even there. Amen? His love is deep. The last place in the Bible, because we see it in the book of Exodus, and then we go to the book of Revelation, and we see a cube again. Oh, this is where I just get a tad bit excited. I wasn't really excited before. My mathematical mind, I mean, I might jump up and down here. That's okay. Don't get worried about it. Listen to this. His glory was contained in a cube in the Old Testament, opened up by the cross so that the Holy Spirit can dwell with us. But watch what's going to happen. Okay, contained in a cube, not really accessible, opened up by the way of the cross so that the Holy Spirit can dwell in me. Guess where I'm going to dwell someday? In a cube. Yeah, in a cube! Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now let me just right there. There's a lot of stuff going on over in the Middle East. God knows all about it. He knows all about it. Middle East is the seedbed, the cradle of humanity. That's where God started humanity. It's where he's going to end it. Don't be troubled by what's happening over there. God's in control, amen? And they can do whatever they want to his holy city, Jerusalem, on earth. God's bringing down a new Jerusalem. Now, i got to get a little bit excited here. How many of you have ever thought you've gone to a city? 
city, a beautiful city, and thought, wow, that's gorgeous. How do we make those things? You know, go past the, the arches in St. Louis or drive down into Pittsburgh at night, and you see the skyline and the lights and the big buildings. And, you know, until you get inside a city and you realize what sinfulness does and there's pollution and crime and all that, the outside of a city, you're thinking, we can create some gorgeous stuff on this earth. Yeah, do you know why? Because my mind was made by Creator God. We are creative because a Creator made us. And so we can make some really nice cities till we get inside and we realize what sin has done. Amen? But listen to me. Picture the most beautiful city skyline you've ever seen. And now imagine you are standing watching a city come out of the sky that was made by God himself. Didn't have to go through a sinful, finite brain. God handcrafted the city. Don't you worry about what they do to Jerusalem over there. Pray for Jerusalem, but God's bringing down a new one. Amen? When Jesus comes back, the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven as a door for her husband. And this is what that city is going to be like. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And what does it say he's going to do? He will wipe away, say it with me, every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's what that city's going to be like. Amen? The new heaven and the new earth. Now, wait a second. I'm going to walk in a city where I have, I have no reason to fear. I'm going to walk in a city where I have no threat of any wrong ever being done to me or me doing any wrong to anyone. I'm going to walk in a city where there'll never be a reason for a sad tear to be shed. That's pretty good. But it gets even better. Because John said, an angel talked to me about this, held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city. And when he measured it, he found it was a square. As wide as it was long. Now wait. In fact... Its length and its width and its height were each 1,400 miles. The restoration of all of existence, what was held back, unveiled in the cross of Jesus, so that now God's Spirit can dwell in me, I'm going to a place where God's Spirit takes over everything in Inside out. Say it with me. Jesus turns things inside out. Look at this. I saw no temple in the city. There was no temple left with a holy place and a holy of holies and a court. There was no temple. And John was probably confused. Jerusalem was the capital city which held the temple. So he's looking around naturally. Where's the place we go to worship God? I'm looking in the new city in this perfect, beautiful cube. But there's no temple. Where is it? How am I supposed to worship God? There was no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Hallelujah. Jesus is the center of our worship. 
We don't need to go to a temple. We don't need to go behind a curtain. We don't need to shed animal, shed the animal blood anymore. Jesus is the center of our worship. Amen? And when we live in this cube, we will walk around in that city. Now outside of it, too. It's the whole new heaven and new earth. I'm going to be exploring other planets. I hope you're going to be there with me. In heaven, I'll be building Legos, doing calculus, traveling to the Andromeda galaxy. You can do whatever you want to do. That's what I'm going to be doing. But when I'm walking through that city, going in and out of its gates, because the Bible says those gates will never be shut. The Bible says there'll be no need for the moon or the sun, because God will, His glory will be its light. Wait, the glory used to be shut up in the Holy of Holies. Then it was unveiled in the cross of Jesus Christ. And now the glory overtakes the light of the sun because God's glory will be everywhere. Hallelujah. That is how Jesus turns things inside out. 